I'm going to ask you to stand now for the reading of God's Word and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Our text begins at verse 25. We'll go through verse 34. Let's all give reverent hearing now to the holy, infallible, inspired, and inert word of the living God. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, and he washed their wounds. Immediately, he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house, and he set food before them, and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. You may be seated. I gave uh, quite a bit of thought to this before I decided to see whether we could pull it off. So I know it's a little bit tricky, but if you bear with me, I, I think it'll make sense. It'll tie together. What I'm thinking about here as we come into our text this morning, I think what we can see is right within the same text, we have two very compelling storylines. And those uh, compelling storylines are uh, mutually related, they're complementary, and I think we can see they're entirely engaging all on their own. But in, instead of deciding to choose one over the other this morning, which would be fine, and if we did so, uh, we could proclaim a very uh, soul-nourishing word from either of the storylines, I think. Uh, what I want to do is say that the best way to understand those two interrelated storylines is to see how one fits within the other to give the entire story tremendous spiritual force. So let's think about the storylines. And the first one is the one that you were already thinking of when I announced this text and we read it. And how couldn't you not? This is one of the most compelling questions in all of Scripture that you find here in verse 30. It just leaps right off the page at you. It is instantaneously, immediately, personally engaging when you hear this jailer stand before those apostles and missionaries with a sword to his throat saying, What must I do to be saved? It's a sincere question. It's a desperate question. It's an urgent question. 
And as you think about that and you place this notion of what I must do to be saved and knowing that he's a, he's a pagan, he's a Gentile, and that the right way to do this is faith, you understand that this is Luke telling the story of how that message or that decision of the Jerusalem Council back in Acts 15 is working its way now through the Gentile church. Because you'll remember that Jerusalem Assembly addressed the question of what do Gentiles have to do to be saved? And there were some of the church who were saying, well, uh, faith's not enough, that's obvious. You've got to become a Jew first. You've got to become circumcised. You've got to keep the law. And they said, no, faith is enough. And so one of the things that Luke is doing in this unit, as Paul takes that decree and drops them off in the churches along the way and then breaks new ground for the kingdom of God where he goes, one thing that Luke's doing in this entire unit is saying, see, the decision of the Jerusalem council is being confirmed by providence. Faith really is enough. Think of Lydia. One who was on the outskirts of Judaism somehow as a proselyte. The Word of God is proclaimed, and as it's being proclaimed, the text vividly says the Lord ripped open her heart so that she could believe. Confirmation that the decision was right. And now you come into our text, and once again, the issue or the matter of a Gentile and their faith takes center stage. And again, we're going to see that faith indeed is enough. It's an obvious storyline. It's an encouraging storyline when we're, we're going to think about towards uh, uh, the end of our message this morning. But there's something gnawing in me as I think about that question. Is that all this text is trying to tell us? If it was, that'd be fine with me. But it seems to me that this text is something more than a narrative about somebody's personal faith. And I take that from the very entry point into our text this morning in verse 25 as we see the missionaries in stocks and chains in the bowels and the deep inner recesses of the darkness of a pagan jail. And what I cannot help but think about is that lurking behind our text here in camouflage is a much bigger storyline than this jailer's personal faith, no matter how compelling and interesting and edifying that is all to itself. It seems to me as you pull back the threads of the text and you read behind it in the context and then you work within our context, it seems that Luke is showing us that that story of faith is situated within a broader and more compelling story of God's conquest over the kingdom of darkness. And of course I say that because these missionaries showed up in Philippi under God's direction. You remember the story. It's a humorous one. Uh, The apostle and the missionaries are in southern Galatia, and they intended to go west, and God said, no, go north to Turkey. And when they get north to Turkey, and they decide to go even further north, God said, no, go west now. And... um, Then they get west and they see this uh, man in a vision at Troas who said, come on over and help us. And so they they go over to to, uh, Macedonia, to the city of Philippi. Mind you, a man called them and said, we need help. And they find a lady and she gets saved. 
and it looked like everything was going great. Until they meet another lady. And she's not quite what you'd call a lady. The text says she was a slave girl. And she was inhabited by the spirit of Python. They met a snake on their way to preach the gospel. And in that moment of opposition, the apostle finally got so irritated at this slave girl and her incessant shrieking pronouncements about the message of the missionaries that Paul rebuked the demonic spirit within her and cast it out. And the byproduct and the unintended consequence of that is the whole town now became uh, seized with an uproar. A populist fury settled over the community. And now all of a sudden, after being charged with disrupting the peace and overturning the religion of their culture, the missionaries are now in jail. Think about it. God sovereignly sent them to mission in Macedonia, to Philippi, and now because they faithfully responded to God's call and they engaged in mission and they preached the word, now they are in jail. And the very people who are the mouthpieces for Jesus Christ in Philippi have now been shut. The gospel now looks like it's chained in the dark inner recesses of a pagan jail with two bloodied to a pulp beaten soldiers of Christ. You see that? That is the context of that jailer crying out, uh, what must I do to be saved? And by the way, it's that jailer who just hours before had laid the very stripes upon the back of these missionaries. And so the total picture here is, as you take the context in, what you understand is that it looks like the kingdom of darkness has defeated Christ. If you'd never read the book of Acts before, I'm sure you might be a little unsettled if your reading stopped at verse 24. Because what it looks like is that Christ is a failure. Mission is a failure. Paul is a failure. And that the kingdom of Christ cannot withstand, well, it cannot withstand the fiery assaults of satanic opposition. That's your backdrop. That's the problem. And yet, the glory of our text says that God in His sovereignty snaps victory out of the jaws of defeat, or apparent defeat. You see, this man's faith here is not just the story of faith, and it's a wonderful story. We're going to think about that story. But the broader context in which that story of faith emerges is that God is making him a trophy for His grace to show that the kingdom of darkness doesn't prevail over Christ. And that's for our encouragement this morning. This is a story then of divine conquest, and we're going to entitle it Conquest at Midnight, because that's when it was. And the main point of our text is that God conquers darkness by faith of the preaching of the gospel. God conquers darkness by faith of the preaching of the gospel. We'll unfold that in two parts. First of all, the context speaks of divine conquest over darkness, and then the salvation of the jailer speaks of the means of that conquest. So let's unfold our text. 
Point one, the context speaks of divine conquest over darkness. We have to see this broader context before we can appreciate the Philippian jailer's faith. Let's see if we can uh, sketch in the backdrop. I think you basically have it. So this is not even a Cliff Notes version, I suppose you could call it, of the story. Uh, The missionaries were headed out, verse 16, to preach the gospel at the place of prayer, which we know was the place where the synagogue was outside of town. Not a synagogue, just a place where uh, people met in humble simplicity around the scriptures. And, and on their way there, they're intercepted by this slave girl with the spirit of Python. Uh, she uh, somehow decides to follow them persistently for several days, screaming out everywhere that she went, that these were the servants of the Most High God, and that they had come to preach the message of salvation to them. We learned that this demonic spirit within her uh, caused uh, her masters, that means there were multiple men who owned her and were abusing her, uh, she made them a ton of money. And the result is that when the demonic spirit was cast out, their cash flow died. And they became enraged. And they gathered the magistrates and the crowds in the marketplace. And they said, this is really a religious duel. Remember that? They said, this is a religious duel. And and you can see the testimony of this idea of a religious duel here when you see the charges brought by these masters. They said they're proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or deserve being Romans. They said it's not just about us against them. It's not pure xenophobia. It's partly that. Really, at its root, the masters say, this is a religion which we reject. This is about a religious duel. They are preaching a God and a system of faith and salvation which is antithetical to being a Roman, and that's what we pride ourselves in. So there's your theme of, of, of the kingdoms in conflict, in conflict and, and uh, fighting against one another. So let's pull apart some of the elements of this which lead up to this very powerful, urgent, desperate, searching question of the jailer and see how they sort of sketch in the notion that we're dealing with uh, uh, a divine conquest of darkness. Let's start, number one, with uh, the time. I don't think it's accidental that Luke includes the detail. Number one in verse 25, it was at midnight. Uh the image of darkness coming into the text, given the time of day. Number two, I don't think it's accidental that in verse 29, Luke goes out of his way to tell us that before the jailer went inside of the prison, he struck a light because of the darkness. We don't need to know that. That's an inclusionary detail uh, and an amplification of the scene that we don't need to know. So in a sense, I'm going to argue that it's it's a symbol, really. It's a symbol, a literary symbol of of the broader notion of we have kingdoms in conflict, we have darkness appearing to engulf the gospel and its messengers. That's where the duel takes place, on that battlefield. And then we have this place here that also reflects uh, the conflicts here because of the city. Uh, We pointed out that the city of Philippi had a unique status as a Roman colony. That means that they identified themselves culturally and legally as Romans. And they wore that as a badge of honor. 
to them being Roman was an identity that they, uh, that they were proud of and they rested in. And so they're not just in any jail. They are in a, in a jail in a pagan city that uh, wore it as a badge of honor that they were Roman and thus pagan. So I think the place speaks of the moral and religious antithesis to the kingdom of God. The person does as well. After all, this is the man who was instructed by the magistrates to strike these missionaries and to put lashes upon their back. And that's why we're going to see in a moment that the fruit of his repentance is, the very first one, is that he took those very uh, missionaries whom he had laid these stripes upon and he washed their wounds as an act of penitence. So the man is part of the story of the darkness. He is a Gentile. He is in opposition to Christ. This is what Paul says about Gentiles in Ephesians 4. He said that they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God on account of the ignorance in them. And no, the Apostle Paul does not mean by that that Aristotle didn't know how to do logic. He wrote the book. What he means by that is Aristotle in his alienation from Christ is alienated from the life of God and is thus darkened in his mind, his bent, his heart, his understanding, his affections, his attitude. He is fundamentally, radically in the depth of his being against Christ. And that colors everything that he does. That people of God is this jailer. He's not near the kingdom of God. Let's please understand that. That this jailer, uh, when he meets Paul and Silas, isn't close to Jesus, just on the cusp of, of coming to faith in Christ. He doesn't even know his name. He's a pagan. And he's proud of it. And then you see the circumstances of it all. And uh, the first circumstance I would say is here, and the, the virtual word is not in the text, but the concept is desperation. Desperation is the circumstance. That's one of them. That's an element of it. It's desperation. When God sends you on a mission and the hopes of the church are resting upon your labors and you end up in a jail, having been flogged, beaten, shamed, chained, feet in stocks, and likely headed to your death the next day, it doesn't look very promising for the church. Desperation. What else do you have? You have praying. This is an index of the desperation. And this is one of those engaging moments in our text, isn't it? It's so human in its feel. In one way, I guess. Um, What else do you do when you are in such dire straits and desperate circumstances than do the thing that you uh, have only to do, which is to pray? The Word of God says here that being in the bowels of the prison and chained and in stocks in the middle of the night at midnight, they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening. Suffice it to say, they didn't have a hymnal in their back pocket. And by the way, the lights are out, so they're not reading a book. Beyond that, we know of zero hymns in the New Testament. We don't see any in the early church era, except those written by heretics called the Gnostics. 
themselves? What were they singing? And you see this text when it says that they were singing hymns of praise to God. You shouldn't be thinking of the Trinity hymnal or a piece by the Gaithers. What they were singing was the Psalms. What else would a rabbi sing? What else would somebody sing who had been raised and trained in the Psalter and memorized it by heart in the middle of the night but psalms of lament? You see, it says he's praising God, but the key there is to me that if you look at the lament songs in the Psalter, of about 50% of the psalms are lament psalms, by the way, crying out to God, saying, life really stinks. I tried to serve you, and this is what I got. Help. But as near as I can tell, every single one of the Psalms of Lament, except for Psalm 39, ends with an assertion of confidence in God's victory. And so they end in praise. So this is what I would say they are singing here. I'm not going to put a number on which psalm they were singing. But here they are, in the midst of all of their sorrows and misery and affliction, they are crying out to God in prayer, and they are praising His name. And it seems to me, from from everything I can gather in the text, they're doing it for an evangelistic purpose. So that the rest of the pagan prisoners will be able to hear about their faith. It's not just me who thinks that. Calvin said it. He says that their prayers were a confession of faith and they were part of the means God used to prepare the jailer to respond to the preaching of the gospel. We can't settle long on this for application, but two things seem to emerge immediately in my thinking. Number one is this is how a disciple responds in a situation of conflict. This is how a disciple responds to seasons of suffering. They express their faith. James uh, says in James 1-2, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. I think we could say this is a trial. And I think we can say this is them considering it all joy. They're praying and praising the Lord right in the midst of the circumstances of their very misery. People of God, this is one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life. One of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is to grow to a point of maturity in the Lord Jesus that when you are afflicted, you rejoice. And the reason why it's one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is because it runs so completely counter to our common sense notions which flow from our flesh. You see, when we are afflicted in life, the flesh says, complain. Be negative. Become anxious. But the Word of God says that moment of you entering into that season of suffering and you experiencing that hand of divine affliction upon you is the opportunity that God has given you by providence to settle down in your heart and to sit with a composed mind and think about the mercies of God to you so that in that moment, instead of complaining about God's providences, you rejoice. Why should you do that? Because you're a self-loathing individual? No. Because uh, you have an abnormal psychology? No. 
the reason why the people of God rejoice in the midst of their sufferings, and I say even in the midst of their sufferings, is because they understand what God is doing in them. He is working in them an eternal weight of glory. You can never become mature in Christ without afflictions and trials and sufferings. I've never seen a single person who I believe is advancing in grace who hasn't known sufferings. The Bible says it won't be that way. Jesus made it a a virtual um, proverb, if you will. He says, the person who comes after me, who would be my disciple, begins the entire process by denying himself. Taking up his cross. And the last time I checked, the cross wasn't a bed of roses. What are they doing here? They're expressing the faith of a disciple. And at the same time, in the midst of that, when it looked like the gospel was chained, they are giving evidence of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are showing forth the power of Christ in his gospel that though men may try to chain the preacher of the gospel, the gospel itself isn't chained. And so here they are carrying the torch of the gospel to light up the darkness of the night in a dreary cell in the bowels of a dark prison. They've accepted their place providentially. We learn from their example, people of God, that the place where God has called you to is your place for mission. It's your place to light up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your place to let the truth of the gospel shine. It is your missionary field. Now notice what happens as a result of all that earthquake. Very fascinating the way the details of the story emerge, the very construction of the grammar. There is a tremendous connectedness between the scenario or the scene of verse 25 and then the testimony of verse 26. We almost feel the way the story is told, the ground moving from underneath our feet. Luke uh, is vivid in his details that the ground thundered and it shook. And the prison house upon which, uh, the foundation of the prison house upon which it was built, it was shaken. And then we see the immediacy of the connection between the rumbling of the foundations and the snapping of the chains and the opening wide of the prison doors. And the result is the doors opened wide, the chains fell off, all at the power of God. Now ask yourself a question, was this necessary? Did God need an earthquake to free prisoners of the gospel? No, all you have to do is remember Acts 12. Remember, uh, Peter was in the bowels of a prison guarded by a cohort of soldiers and and chained to them and to walls. And and, uh, he just sent an angel of the Lord. God did in the middle of the night. And he, he kicked Peter in the rib and said, get up. He just walked out of the prison, and as he walked out of the prison, it seems as if the, uh, the, the doors of the prison bounded open before him. No earthquake was needed. So we know now, when we hear about this earthquake, reading it in context, God didn't have to do this. So why did he? Why did he? And it seems to me the reason he did that 
was for the confirmation of those missionaries in faith, first of all, their prayers were heard. They could sense it. But the other thing now, and this is where we get into the story, this was for the jailer. This earthquake was for that jailer. This was a display of the power of God to magnify the glory of His power and His presence in such a way that that jailer who was jolted out of bed by the rumbling of the ground below him would be overcome with a sense of awe. You see that in what's in the details in our text now. Verse 27, The jailer awoke and he saw the prison doors opened. He was kicked out of bed when he was. He, he uh, scraped the sleepers out of his eyes. And the greatest fear that he had had been realized. The doors of the jail were open. And he surmised that the prisoners had escaped. He did what any thinking person would do in that moment. In his position, he said, let's commit suicide. The word here is makaira. It's a short knife. It's a dirk. It's a blade that would be perfect for slitting your throat or disemboweling yourself. And he's, he's making every indication here that's what he wants to do. And the reason is because we know from Roman law at the time that a jailer who was responsible for the, for the inmates within his prison, if any of them escaped, it was death for him. So he said, I'll just uh, cut out the middleman, take care of it myself. He went Roman executioner on himself, or tried to, or was going to. And it's within that moment then that the entry point for the gospel begins. Because Paul says with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now, this is very funny. Because it's dark. Here we have these people chatting back and forth now in a conversation in the middle of the darkness. But ask yourself the question, how in the world did Paul know he was trying to, uh, to kill himself? He can't see. And why did Paul stay there? Why didn't Paul and Silas do what Peter did? When they knew they were encountering a divine happening, Peter just got up and he walked out of the jail. Why did Paul stay there? And why did then Paul engage this man in the middle of the dark? Well, the only answer we can conclude is that God had led him to do all of those things. Because God had given that quake. God had shaken the foundations of this man to the point that though once he was dark and don't so once he was bound and captivated by by the inferiority of these uh, of these vain ideas of paganism, in an instance when he encountered the power of the voice of God and, and the power of his presence in its holiness, he was overwhelmed with the fear of God. Isn't that what we sung about in Psalm 29? In our Psalm of Adoration, the power of the voice of God uh, causing the cedars to, to burst into splinters, uh, the very mountains of Lebanon skipping like lambs. You see, when a person comes into contact with a sense of the power and the might and the holiness of God, it brings them under the fear of God. And we can conclude that's what happened in this case, as he not only saw the vision, or not only felt the power of God in the quake, but the visual evidence of it with the doors open, the chains off. Verse 29. Now, 
begins to open up a ray of light into this dark cell. He called for lights and he rushed in, he trembled and he fell down before Paul and Silas. All these are details which confirm now that this was all orchestrated by the divine hand of God. But the thing is critical here to notice is the disposition of this man. He had been wanting to kill himself and now what does he do? He leaps into the cell, that's the language of the text, and he trembled with fear and he bowed prostrate before them. Once their captor, now their disciple. That is the context you need here to begin to think about this jailer's response. It's somewhat interesting to note that he was prostrate in verse 29, and now uh, we see that he must have jumped up off of the ground. Verse 30, he takes them out of the prison, probably into some courtyard, maybe even the very marketplace where he had put lashes upon their back just hours before, and now comes the question. Now comes the question of this man. It's a dramatic question. What must I do to be saved? After all that I've just recounted here, one of the things that I want to make very clear, sometimes you encounter this in comments or notes in study Bibles or you know, just a part of urban legend, that this man was simply asking for them, well, how does he not have to commit suicide? But that's a ridiculous idea. He's not worried about suicide. He's not worried about his circumstances now. The man is trembling. He bears all the marks of a person who in Scripture has encountered a sense of the fear of God. This is not a man who is asking about salvation or deliverance from unfavorable circumstances. He's seeking the Lord because he has now been prepared by God under this sense of divine awe. He had come to understand that these peculiar men with their peculiar message had been brought to Him to speak a word of grace. And you know what? This man had been prepared for it another way. He was in the courtyard when the charges were being brought. He had heard the testimony that Paul cast out this demon and and it actually worked because their cash dried up. He was inclined to think maybe there was something to this thing now. He had probably heard reports that they had been running around town um, uh, preaching salvation. That was the thrust of the charge uh, brought by the masters that they're preaching other customs. And now, on account of everything that he has seen, he begins to understand that that message about salvation was a message that that was one that uh, was reasonable to believe in now that he's under the fear of God. So he says, what must I do? And so we see then that this man's story of conversion takes its place and it is situated within this larger context of the gospel is under attack, the kingdom is under attack, the gospel look changed, the missionaries are in jail. It looks like the entire thing is a colossal failure. And yet God works so mightily now to bring this man to a point of desperation that he might hear the gospel. 
Well, that brings us into our second point, then the salvation of the jailer speaks of the divine means of conquest. And it's really a simple and straightforward shot from here, isn't it? Because we have the means here. We have the ordinary means and we have divine means. We have the ordinary means. What did they do? The, the, uh, the, the jailer said, what must I do? And they turned and they preached the gospel to him. And here you have the summary of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your house. They didn't take any time, did they? He's asking, we're preaching. Verse 32 is a summary of what they preached too. We're told they spoke the word of God to him, so they explained it in greater detail. But notice the gospel message which they ple- they preached. Believe. Believe. They point into the object of faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is critical because they don't just say to him, believe, as if some sort of nebulous, generic faith kind of thing was enough. They don't just point him to some higher power or to God in the generic or whatever thing they like to believe in. No, they point him very specifically to the face of God, Jesus Christ. And so they pointed him to the only one who is able to save. They pointed Him to the only one through whom there is forgiveness of sins and and righteousness unto eternal life. They they point Him to Him who Paul says, uh, in whom are hidden all of the treasures. All of the treasures that we need. And the result of it all is, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. That was it. Just believe and you'll be saved. As I thought about that, I said, what a wonderful simplicity there is in this. How we ought to rejoice this morning in the simplicity of the gospel message. Oh yeah, it it contains more expansion and elaboration as we see here from the catechizing they did in verse 32. But if you boil it all down, here is the simplicity of the gospel message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Think of that. That's not paganism. Paganism doesn't teach being saved by simple faith. The pagan was burdened with an endless set of ritual and sacrifice and incantations and worship that never ended. And they never had any assurance of any salvation. In fact, most of the Greek religion had no notion of salvation after death. All they looked forward to was that horrible scene that you read of in Homer's Odyssey when he goes down to the world of the shades and everybody there is bored to tears. Remember that? They're just sighing down there. That's the Greek notion of eternal life. Bored to tears. I guess not even playing backgammon. They're just tired. They're bored. They're weary. But here we have the message of salvation. And the thing that just grips me here is the message is so simple. Believe, and that's enough. Faith and faith alone is enough to save. Faith is adequate. Faith is sufficient. Faith saves. And here's the other thing that I take from this, is the Apostle Paul doesn't quantify it in any particular way. As long as you have an intense faith, a robust faith, um, a strong faith, an energetic faith, a rejoicing faith, or any kind of faith you can think of. No, he says the only faith you need is faith to lay hold of Christ. 
And that's the joy this morning that we have in the simplicity of the gospel message, people of God, is because faith by itself is enough. You are encouraged this morning to take whatever faith that you have, riddled with doubt, riddled with anxiety, concerns, lack of information, ignorance, whatever faith you have, you just take that to Christ. That's the gospel message. Believe and you'll be saved. Wow, I just, I hope we, we rejoice in the simplicity of this message. Christianity has for centuries been, been mischaracterized and misrepresented as, as a whole set of, of hoops to jump through. Legalese and obligations and never-ending stuff to do. And even then, you never even know whether you're saved. How could that happen if anybody had read Acts 16.31? There's no obstacles in the way of Christ believes. And the man did believe. You see a very faint testimony of it in verse 34. Luke spends more time talking about this man's fruit of faith than he does his faith. But you can see very definitively in verse 34 that he believed. And I hate to say this because I love the New American Standard Bible translation so much, but they fouled this up terribly. Because it's like a gobbledygook here, having believed in God with all of his house. That's not what the text says. That is not what the text says. The text literally says, He rejoiced with his whole household, he having believed. Nowhere does the grammar of the text say that the household believed. The grammar of the text is emphatic about the fact that he and he alone believed. The verb rejoice is singular, third person singular. He rejoiced, and the participle here, uh, uh, having believed, that ing is a participle, it is singular. He, having believed, rejoiced. He rejoiced. He was saved. We learn nothing about whether anybody in his household was, uh, was saved or believed. It doesn't say it at all. So the fact that Luther carefully frames in all the rest of the deal tells and leaves, that, uh, leaves absent there that the rest of his house believed tells us that he was the one that believed. He was the one that God sovereignly reached out to in that moment. He's saved. And it's confirmed by abundant faith. Look at verses 33 and th- uh, 34. He washed their wounds. We already said this is an act of penitence. He washed their wounds. He dressed their wounds. He was the one that caused them to have the wounds, and he washed their wounds. He cared for their wounds. Then he submitted his whole house to baptism. We've already pointed out that uh, Luke tells us nothing about anybody in his household believing, but the entire house was baptized, indicating that he is consecrating his household to the Lord as the head of the house. He is covenantally head of his house, and so he brings his whole house to be baptized, and now he takes obligation to train them in the principles of the Christian religion that they may believe. He brings them into their house. Notice this is very interesting in verse 34. He brought them into his house. Well, guess what? He wasn't given any charge to do that. He was given charge to throw them into jail, verse 24, but he was never given them charge to take him to his house, and here he breaks the rules. He brings them into his house, and then he sets a buffet before them, and they have a nice dinner solidifying the bonds of fellowship which they have in Christ. But notice the maybe the, the greatest fruit of faith here is he rejoiced. It might be the greatest fruit of faith. He rejoiced. He had joy. Heartfelt joy 
in God through Christ. Why? Because he believed. We learn something about the believer, even though they may be a neophyte in faith and five minutes into Christ. This is a characteristic of a person who actually believes they have joy. They have joy in God through Christ. Our culture is full of fake joy, isn't it? Everybody is so happy. Oh, unless they have a broken leg, I get it. But everybody else, they're all happy. They have big houses and cars and dreams and money and entertainment. And we got recreation. We got more stuff to do in Southern California than the rest of the world does have combined. If you want to ski in the morning and go uh, to the to the beach and surf in the afternoon, you can do it. If you want to go to the amusement park, you can do it. You want to go to the greatest museums, you can do it. You want to go have the best food, you can have it. You want to go take a, a hike into the most beautiful portion of nature, you can do it. You can do anything you want. This is Disneyland. Everybody's joy. The world has nothing but joy, but they're all empty because there isn't any joy in material things. Have you ever talked to somebody who was broken in life? Have you ever talked to somebody who was broken in life and yet had every single thing that our culture flaunts as not only the credential of success, but the epitome of happiness? And if they've been broken, they have no joy. They have no hope. They have no meaning. They have nothing that holds them up. But if you have Christ this morning, people of God, You have joy. Faith was the means appointed. We have the human side, the preaching of the gospel and the means, and now we have the divine side. And I take this from everything that's presented here in our text. Divine preparation. I I can't think of any other way to say it. This man was divinely prepared And by the way, we said uh, that though he was five minutes away from the kingdom, as it were, he was nowhere near the kingdom. For all he knew, he was a self-consciously committed pagan the day before. And in the middle of the night, he's brought under an awareness of the power and the glory and the majesty of God. That's divine preparation. This is what we pray for. This is what we pray for. We pray that God would lead us unto people who are being prepared. People whose hearts God is working in before they know He's even working in their hearts. But this is what happened. God prepared him. He set up all of the circumstances in such a way that on that day, in that place, he would meet these men and hear this message and be saved. And we just sit back and we stand in awe of how God, in just really the snap of his fingers, in the blink of an eye, humbled this man with a display of divine sovereignty And He caused him to to lie down his face before the preachers of the Word and beg to hear the sound of the Gospel. 
oh, we are rejoicing in the story. Don't get me wrong. I said this is the first storyline. This is the compelling storyline. This is the thing that grabs you as you read this text, this, this desperate, urgent, powerful question. What must I do to be saved in the story of the preaching of the gospel? It's a great story. But that's not all the story here. That's not all the story. That is not all of the story. The rest of the story is that the kingdom of darkness in the midst of revolt, having uh, seemingly defeated the gospel and, and the growth of the kingdom in a moment of time, is stopped in its tracks. And one of the very perpetrators of the persecution is brought to Christ on his knees for salvation in just a moment. And here God beats down the satanic attack against the gospel and the church. And He puts His stamp of exclamation upon the victory. And He does it for the encouragement of the church. He does it for the encouragement of the church. Oh, I know we read all over the Bible that Jesus wins. I get that. It's in the prophecies. Jesus Himself said it in the, the Great Commission. I'm with you always, even on the ends of the earth. Make disciples. That's already a story. But when we read stories like this, when it looks like the church is on the ropes, Christ is on the ropes, the gospel's on the ropes, it looks like there's nothing but bleakness and despair and hopelessness, and then we see, oh, in just a moment, God do just marvelous things. Well, it helps, uh, it helps us tremendously to see that uh, we have great consolation. Christ has the victory. That's an encouraging message. But let me leave you with one more encouraging message as we conclude here by way of application. I do believe that we have to walk away from this text encouraged this morning. And I'm going to frame it in like this. I, I believe the text says this to us as, as a word. Perhaps uh, you were thinking about pot roast through the sermon and you tuned out. Tune in now. Because I can distill and summarize the essence of this message, at least from one angle. This is the word of encouragement that God has given for you today. And it's simple and it's this. The gospel is for the desperate. The gospel is for the desperate. Now, if you're not desperate, tune out, because it doesn't matter to me. But if you're desperate, this is tremendous. The gospel is for the desperate. And the desperation is in the question. Just think about the parts. What? It's exclamatory in its force. What? It is, it is appeal. It is pleading. It is given with the deepest sense of earnestness. Must. He has come under a sense and a conviction of the fear of God. And he knows something must be done. He has come before the majesty and the power of God. And the fear of the Lord has gripped him. He knows something must be done. It's un. Yielding and unrelenting, he needs salvation. The tone and the force of the question tells us this man is desperate. The very subjective condition of the man tells us that he is a desperate man. It flows from all of the details that we have here in the text, from the leaping of this man in the jail cell, to his prior commitment to suicidal tendencies, to coming into Paul's presence, trembling, bowing before them, begging them for answers. Everything about this man's condition tells us this question is the most sincere question he'd ever asked in his life. And he sits here groaning under the weight 
of that anxiety, that deep concern, how do I get right with God? The gospel comes. We conclude from that this morning, people of God, and this is the word of encouragement for you if you are desperate. The gospel is for those who are desperate. The gospel is for those who are desperate. The gospel is for those who are desperate because they have been broken over the knowledge of their sin. By the way, our culture knows nothing about sin, but when you read the Sermon on the Mount like we did this morning, and we read those stubborn and difficult and challenging commands to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, there goes all of that facade of phony self-righteousness which everybody preaches. There's no deep sense of conviction about being self-righteous because you recycle. Because you put your, your grass clippings in the correct trash bin and your soda cans and your detergent bottles in the other. That's not conviction of righteousness. See, people who know sin, who understand sin, who understand the fear of the Lord, who have been humbled because they have encountered a sense of the fear of God, are those who have been made desperate. And the good news this morning is that the gospel is for those who have been made desperate. God shows mercy to those who come simply with the hands of faith and say, please save me. But I thought about that and I said... That's a great message if there's any unbelievers here to hear the simplicity of the gospel message this morning and know that it's for desperate people. You can come just as you are with faith and you'll be saved. That's a great message. God shows mercy. God gives grace to the desperate. But I said, guess what? That's not just for unbelievers. That's for all of us who are believers. The gospel is for us this morning if we're desperate. Are you desperate this morning? Did you come desperate needing assurance of pardon of sin? Because you know you've blown it in your life. Oh, it's a good thing that doesn't belong to anybody here. We all did pretty good last week, right? If you know you've blown it, and you feel, I need some assurance, all you have to do is come with humility and faith and uh, grace is for the desperate. How about uh, some of you who've been trying to get your life right? You know what God wants you to do. You see the problem. You understand what He wants for you. You understand even how to do it. And yet every single time you try it, it slips through your hands like a wet bar of soap. You can't do it. And you feel like you've wasted another week trying and failing. It, I, I can't enumerate all these conditions of, of desperation, but the gospel is for those people. The, the person who's come to God by faith the tenth time or the hundredth time or the millionth time, just come back. J- just come back this morning in your desperation and with simple faith, whatever you have. I don't care how little it is. Just bring that. Don't, don't put it off. Don't, don't wait to say, well, I'm a better mood or I feel closer to God somehow. This is for the desperate. God hears the cry of the desperate. And God shows grace to those who are desperate. And so as often as you feel desperate, this text says you come to Him desperate with faith and He hears you. 
then what's your assurance? Well, if God will hear the prayer of this pagan jailer who laid stripes on his apostles, who was five minutes before against Christ and his kingdom, and he heard his cry in desperation, how much more will he hear you, who he's placed the waters of baptism upon and sealed unto his covenant? God loves his people. He loves you. And so this morning in the story of this man in his desperation, pointed to Jesus Christ to believe in. It's your message this morning. It's yours to take to heart. God shows mercy to you if you come in your own humble desperation and say, I've blown it again. Shower me with your grace. So I hope you do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for old stories that come and impact us in brand new ways. It doesn't feel like any time has elapsed that we bounded over centuries and even millennia from that jail cell to this moment. It feels like nothing has changed because the message is enduring because you are enduring. Lord, help us this morning to believe that you give grace to the desperate and to the humble. And so I pray, Lord, you'd humble us all, all who are within the the earshot of the hearing of this word. Pray that they would be humbled by the fear of the Lord and the, the knowledge of the presence of His power, and that though they don't feel like they have a lot of faith, whatever they have stirring in their heart, I pray for them that they would say, take this. These are the hands of faith. Cling to Christ. And as we do that, Lord, we rejoice because we have great confidence to know you hear that prayer and you show mercy to the desperate. That's all of us here. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness that it never fails. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.